You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Lovely to see you all, and by see, I of course mean visualize your presence with my imagination. I do hope you're well. So much to tell you about this time. Let's start with a few thank yous. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I assure you, I thank you. First thank you goes out to the fabulous Girls in the Back Row podcast. I was lucky enough to be pointed towards their marvellous show when they sang the praises of my shows. Well, having heard a few of your episodes now, may I sing those praises right back at you? Definitely check those girls out. Superb podcastula entertainment. Here is a £17 Canterbury I caught on my last fishing trip. Canterbury. Had an amazing email from a Mr. Frank Snodgrass who hails from Larkspur, California. Listen to this. Hi Adam, love the shows. I thought I would send you some pictures of my shop. It was used in the 1949 movie Impact with Ella Raines. I've been here almost 40 years. We play Attaboy and Secret History all the time in the shop and hold movie nights once a month, usually based on your movie of the month. We are a Patreon also and yes, the Brighton Strangler has been on the wall a long time. From all of us at Frank's Hairstyles, a very big Canterbury to you and your family, Frank Snodgrass. Attached to this email were some pictures, and by crikey, the man was not lying. He has a Brighton Strangler poster on the wall of his shop. How awesome is Frank's Hairstyles? It may well be the greatest hair salon ever founded. And I don't say that lightly. I realise what a bold statement that may be. But after carefully weighing up the evidence, I'm prepared to put myself out there a bit on that one. I'm only human after all. I did a little searching and I found out that some of the members of Journey, Huey Lewis and the News and Starship have had their hair cut there. And as they had their hair cut by Frank and his team, the eyes of the Brighton Strangler poster were staring down at them with all their hatred. There'll be no New Year for you. Well, if you're listening right now, Frank and all his team, you are the new Shangri-La, the end of the holy pilgrimage. I'm going to fly out there one day and have my hair cut under the Brighton Strangler poster. I need to make this happen. Here's a Canterbury for you all. Canterbury. And here is a Starship Canterbury. And because you are a hair salon, here is a canter Harry. Harry. Lastly, this time, I must throw a huge thank you out to Wired magazine, who wrote very nice things about the secret history of Hollywood. What an honor! You definitely receive a technologically infused Canterbury. Just quickly, I want to tell you that there's a new Patreon reward tier. If you sign up to the $15 a month reward thingamy, then you will have access to the newest content thing I'm making. Movie commentaries. Yes, I'm going to be recording special commentaries that you'll be able to play while you're watching certain movies. That'll give you some hopefully interesting insights into how the films were made, as well as the secret histories of the stars or the film. Should be cool. Looking forward to starting on that. Still trying to decide what the first film might be. The Brighton Strangler is being mentioned quite a lot, so maybe that one. Have a real cigarette and have a Kellogg. The best tobacco makes the very best smoke. Have a real cigarette and have a camel. Are you looking for flavor and mildness? 
Sure am. I'm a real singer at Pam Camel. The best tobacco makes the very best smoke. Sense. Have a real cigarette, a real cigarette, a real cigarette. Have a real cigarette, a real cigarette, a real cigarette. Have a camel. Ah, what a happy song! Oh dear, we're not finished, obviously. Cigarette, a real cigarette. Have a camel. Yes, thank you. How about this for a new feature? I'm going to turn. Finished. Have a real cigarette, a real cigarette, a real cigarette. Have a camel. How's about a real cigarette, a real cigarette, a real cigarette. Have a camel. How's about this? Have a real cigarette, a real cigarette. Hang on, let me just pour this jug of water onto the radio. Right, so how's about this for a new feature? I'm going to turn the movie reviewing over to you. How would you like to tell the world what you think of certain films? I'm going to point you towards a movie, and you have two weeks to watch it and tell everyone what you think of it. Here's the catch, though. The films will be generally considered to be appalling. Therefore, if you watch the movie and love it, you will have to tell everyone why. Now, you can either write your review and send it to me at adam at attaboyclarence.com or you can record your review and send me the mp3 file at the same email address. If you forget the email address, just go to attaboyclarence.com and it's on the contact page. All the films I pick, by the way, will be freely available ones online, so you won't have to buy anything. Right, so the first film that needs either wrecking or redeeming is... 1935's The Cocaine Fiends. So, yes, if you have one hour spare, do run on over and watch that absolute treat of a film, which you will find at the film club section of attaboyclarence.com. And when you're done, either defend or denounce the film with a review of your own. Oh, and while you're at it, if anyone can think of a name for this feature, do throw it on over here. I've thought of a few, but you guys are a lot wittier than I am. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Question pot time, then. And the first question to be plucked from the pot is from Tom Chancellor, who asks... Okay, Adam, here's a question for you. Had the Academy recognized Best Makeup as a category for award prior to An American Werewolf in London, what are some of the films you would have chosen? Ooh, good one. Well, I guess I'm rather biased towards Jack Pierce's work on the Universal Horror Films. And of all those creations, I'm perennially astounded by his makeup for Frankenstein in particular. So much thought went into its creation, from the missing hair on his forehead after he'd been through a fire, to the hollow cheeks that they achieved by removing Karloff's dental plate. So clever. He would be my pick. Aside from Jack Pierce, who is the easy choice, I would point people towards the incredible makeup used on the film The Life of Emile Zola starring Paul Muni. The makeup was by Perce Westmore. And I always feel when I'm watching that film that I'm really watching a man age. He starts the movie as a young, energetic, athletic rascal. And by the film's end, he is an overweight, slouching, ready-faced elder statesman. He really looks as though he's been lived in. This is mainly due to Paul Muni's performance, I must say, which I still think ranks as one of the best performances of all time in cinema. It is quite honestly peerless. But the makeup and the prosthetics used on not only Muni, but the supporting players are flawless. Second question, this one from Paul Robinson, who poses the query, Hi Adam, if you were going to remake a Golden Age film today, which one would you choose to do? And would you remake it as a low-budget indie or a high-budget blockbuster? Funny you should ask that, Paul. I have for a long time thought that it would be an amazing idea to produce a big-budget contemporary version 
of the 39 steps set it in the modern day spies and double crosses and the wrong man being chased by evil assassins keep the story the same but set it in the modern day to be brilliant i watched a new version of the film a few years back that was kind of made for tv but it was set during world war one and it followed the book instead of the hitchcock film I think you could quite easily set it in modern-day Britain and follow the Hitchcock story instead. It'd be great fun. Last question, then, is from Elisabetta, who asks, I recently watched Gilda again for the first time since I was a kid, and to my great surprise, it had a happy ending. I didn't remember it that way at all. Was there ever an alternate ending to Gilda? The ending seems totally improbable and almost bizarre, as if test audiences were disappointed with the conclusion it seems to be headed toward. Any insight? Well, Elisabetta, funny you should ask that. I rewatched Gilda myself only a few months ago, and I kind of felt the same way. A lot of people seem to think that the ending is the way it is because of the production code, which hated it when bad people got away with anything. But no one seems to know what sort of ending it should have had. It's based on an original story by E.A. Ellington, so I searched around, hoping to find a copy of that story, so that I could see how that ended, but I have so far turned up nothing. It looks as though it may have fallen out of print, not forever, hopefully, because I would like to see how the original tale ended. And let's face it, it could be pretty dark, seeing as how you had writers like Jim Thompson and James M. Kane around at the time. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. So we're always hearing about films that are lost, aren't we? The Mountain Eagle by Alfred Hitchcock. Probably the most famous lost film. And people are clamouring to find it, turning out their attics in the hope of discovering this long-lost treasure. Sometimes, though, fortune smiles on the brave, and in the cupboards of hospitals, in the cellars of public houses, and from behind the bookcases of spinsters, films that have been given up for dead have returned. Three of which I have watched this week, but should they have stayed lost? In the case of Fascination from 1931, maybe... I should start off by saying that this film is in rather a bad state, especially the first 20 or so minutes, which jumps and chops around wildly. Looks as though they only managed to find about 50% of the film, if this is anything to go by. From what you can piece together, though, the story is of two childhood sweethearts, Larry and Vera, who end up as husband and wife in later life. The husband's eye, however, is drawn to a glamorous actress, Gwenda, and their subsequent affair kicks into motion a triangle of deceit and deception from which no one will escape unhurt. I'm glad you're not going out tonight. I'd be afraid some beautiful creature might run away with you. Oh, Vera, I'm sorry, I meant to tell you. I've got to go out As film plots go, pretty simple and typical of British dramas during the 1930s, a very restrained film, but very well played. There are lots of stiff upper lips, lots of carrying on regardless, and lots and lots of drawing rooms. Still, I have to say that despite a desperately shaky beginning where not only are we subjected to a bloody awful theme song, bloody awful child actors, bloody awful sound and some bloody awful direction by Miles Mander, it suddenly switches up a gear and becomes something rather grand. You heard me right just then, by the way. Miles Mander directed this. He directed many films, as a matter of fact, known as one of the pioneers of sound cinema. I know him best as Giles Conover from Sherlock Holmes and the Pearl of Death and as the chief constable in The Brighton Strangler, perhaps the greatest film of all time. He really was a journeyman when it came to cinema in general. Anyway, his direction in the first ten minutes or so is quite simply terrible. 
for some reason, perhaps he sobered up or had his eyes fixed or something, he suddenly manages to string coherent scenes together. And not only do you find yourself enjoying this film, but being presented along the way with an absolutely enchanting little photo journal of 1930s England. You have some really lovely scenes here, especially of the English countryside during that time, which is magical. There's a wonderful scene where Larry and Gwenda go for a picnic by the river, which I absolutely fell in love with. Of course, my amorous feelings may have been stirred by the fact that Gwenda is played by Madeline Carroll, some years before her most famous turn in The 39 Steps, and I have to say, it is quite obvious to see why she was often called the most beautiful woman in the world back then. She shines whenever she's on screen. If you are going into this film unfamiliar with the sight of Madeline Carroll, then prepare to slump in your chair agog with love. Anyway, a great little film. Flawed, but definitely rewarding. Big props to the British Film Institute for rediscovering and restoring it as best they could. I actually put a call out to my patrons during the past week to see if anyone else fancied having a go at reviewing Fascination. And the brave Mr. Simon O'Hagan duly tracked the film down and sent in his review, which reads... First of all, I should say that I can tell this film is reconstructed and rescued. I mean, heavens, man. I'm used to creaky old movies. But in the copy of Fascination I found, characters tend to walk across the screen as jerky as Japanese ghosts in Asian horror movies. The sound is a bit ropey too, it sounds like someone is having far too much fun on a waterbed just off screen, and as a result, I must admit I missed some of the dialogue. Also, there was a big chunk of the film that was lost. I say this because Gwenda and Larry fall in love awful quick. One minute he's about to call for a second appointment, then next he's flirting in a field. It was a bit jarring. Yes, Simon, I think the chunks were missing. That said, there are things to enjoy. I really enjoy the character of Kay. The scene in which she attempts to cheer Gwenda up is a hoot, and I loved how she used her bottom to turn off the record player. I wonder what else she does with her bottom, though. Never accept a sandwich from this woman. I will not accept a sandwich from her, Simon. That's that's really good advice. The acting is a mixed bag. Kay and Gwenda I enjoyed. Vera and Larry tend to be of the staring-off-in-the-distance sort. I kept waiting for someone to ask them what on earth they were looking at. Madeline Carroll is lovely to look at in some scenes. In others, she looks positively scary. Be quiet, Simon, I will not have that. However, director Chappie then loses some points for allowing Gwenda to deliver several dramatic lines through the back of her mink stole at the climax of the picture. But still, I'm back to Larry. I'm afraid he torpedoed this film for me. It wasn't just his acting. It's that as a character, he seems so limp and uninteresting. I think Vera and Gwenda should both have ditched him and gone off with my great-granddad. However, I found Gwenda's denouement and Carol's final scenes in the film rather touching. So thank you for that. It was an interesting watch, and I did like the line, If you're trying to be an idealist, you've got your hair done wrong. Phew. This reviewing is hard work. How do you do it every week? Simon. Thank you, Simon. Very insightful, old man. It is definitely a creaky old blighter of a film. But I am kind of glad that it's in the world. I do like a quietly doomed romance from time to time. Thanks again, Simon, you legend you. Next up, a film that was lost until 2013, and so sought after was it that the BFI had it listed as one of their 75 most wanted movies, which is a list of, surprisingly, 75 lost movies that the BFI are desperate to find. If you want to be tantalised, do go and search out the list, as some of the films that are on there sound incredible. In fact, the next bonus patron episode, number 12, is dedicated to the films on that list. I'll be looking at some of the ones that sound the most amazing. Anyway, some of the 75 have been found, and I'm glad to say that this is one of them. This is a film called Double Confession from 1950, which stars Peter Lorre, William Hartnell, Norton Wayne, Ronald Howard, Derek Farr, and Joan Hopkins in a British noir thriller set at the seaside. Here, have a clip. I'm sorry about the journalism. That's all right. I probably shouldn't have been much good at reporting local flower shows anyway. Well, we do get other things. Such as? Occasionally someone dies. So this is the story of Jim Medway, who arrives at the British seaside resort of Seagate to find his runaway wife. He finds her cottage hideaway and her lover 
the crooked businessman Charlie Durham, played by the original Doctor Who himself, William Hartnell. Medway's wife is murdered soon afterwards, and a web of intrigue soon begins to form. Medway decides that the best way of dealing with Durham is to blackmail him, but Durham's henchman and associate painter, played with ghastly malevolence by Peter Lorre, starts after Medway with murder in mind. Are you trying to blackmail me? No, Charlie. I just want you to admit it. You see, I know about the White Cottage. I know Lorna came there as Miss Watson. I know you visited her last night. And I know you left at four o'clock this morning. I was there, Charlie, waiting outside. When you left, I could have touched you. I wouldn't have liked that. Very peculiar film. I wasn't sure what I was watching to begin with. The direction and the atmosphere suggest a mystery thriller, but it really took its sweet time about going anywhere. However, after about 20 minutes, I found myself absolutely unable to look away. I have recently been on a holiday to a famous British seaside resort with its own crowded beach and all its British eccentricities, and watching this made me realise how ripe this scenario is for a little darkness. Ironically, even though people go there for the sunshine. To juxtapose ice creams and donkey rides and candy floss with blackmail and murder is a genius stroke. happened, of course, in Brighton Rock. And the fact that it was made in 1950 only adds more to its disorientating atmosphere. After all, this was the age of saucy postcards and deck chair rentals and excursions from busy towns down to the coast on a bus. There was definitely a greater sense of community in those days, and you really get that feeling when you watch this film. Huge groups of people assembling at the beach to play cricket in their suits and summer dresses, their trousers rolled up around their legs, little realising that in and amongst them are cutthroats and blackmailers and murderers. I do have to say that the first portion of the film lags, but it does develop into a thoroughly absorbing British thriller, with some superb turns by Peter Lorre and William Hartnell as the villains, and Joan Hopkins as the single mother who's torn about whether or not to give up her child for adoption. I also very much enjoyed seeing Ronald Howard, the son of Leslie Howard, who did carve out a very successful career for himself, mainly on British television during the 50s and 60s. He played Sherlock Holmes in an early TV incarnation, and he also popped up on The Adventures of Robin Hood, perhaps my favourite TV show from that period. Always love to see Ronald Howard in anything. Anyway, as I say, do keep your eyes out for Double Confession from 1950, a real oddity, a black-as-pitch noir mystery set against the ice creams and candy floss of the British seaside. Lastly, pop quiz, everyone. Which was the first film directed by Orson Welles? Come on, come on. Okay, if you answered Citizen Kane, then you'd be wrong. In fact, three years before he made Citizen Kane, Orson Welles directed, of all things, a silent comedy called Too Much Johnson in 1938. Now, first up, this was part of a brave experiment in storytelling by Wells and his dazzlingly talented repertory group, the Mercury Theatre, who were mounting a stage production of Too Much Johnson, a William Gillette play from 1894. Wells' idea was to integrate the stage play and specially filmed footage in what would have been one of the world's first multimedia entertainment experiences. If you've ever listened to the Mercury Theatre's adaptation of The War of the Worlds, which you can do so by listening to episode 15, by the way, then you will know that Wells and his gang were an incredibly talented bunch of people who took huge risks and giant leaps in storytelling technique and often changed their respective art forms along the way. You only have to look at the impact that Citizen Kane had and is still having to this day on filmmaking. Anyway, when the Mercury Theatre arrived at the Stony Creek Theatre in Connecticut to perform the play along to the film accompaniment, they discovered that the theatre had no projection equipment, and they had to perform the play without it. 
The problem was that the film was so integral to the play that the play made no sense without it, and audiences couldn't really understand what was going on. Because of this, the play was a huge flop, and Wells stuffed the film into the bottom of a trunk and forgot about it. For decades, the film was supposed lost, but in 2008, it turned up in a warehouse in Italy, and ever since, audiences have been clamoring to see it. Now, it has to be said, the film without the play is about as confusing as the play without the film. You can kind of follow the story, but they need each other to provide that satisfying narrative whole. So if you are going to seek it out, don't expect a conventional film experience. However... I must admit to being rather charmed by it. It's a silent film, and the story is that of Augustus Billings, a lawyer played by Joseph Cotton, who is seen at the beginning making love to Mrs. Dathis, played by Arlene Francis. By the way, I fell in love with Arlene Francis so hard after seeing her in this absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Anyway, her husband, Leon Dathis, finds them and chases Billings all over the city until Billings eventually escapes him and flees to Cuba, where more madcap adventures take place. Firstly, you can see a few seeds of Citizen Kane here. The newsreels in Citizen Kane always struck me as perfectly observed. Well, Too Much Johnson is set in the 1910s and Wells really gets that period detail right. You never doubt for one second that you are watching something from that era. From the rapid-fire editing, the sped-up action, the missing frames. And to reassure you that what you're watching is a pastiche, people wear oversized fake moustaches and they're chased by keystone cops. It really is a fun little watch. Doesn't make that much sense, and obviously isn't as good as Citizen Kane, but it's really funny. And as a parody of silent movies, it hits every single mark. Brilliant. Well, for radio entertainment this week, let's try something a little different. I mentioned the beautiful Arlene Francis. Well, did you know that she played the prostitute who was tortured by Bela Lugosi in 1932's Murders in the Rue Morgue? Which, although it was a brief performance, was absolutely terrifying. Well, she later became known throughout the industry as the first lady of radio. As well as being dazzling to behold, she was also a very witty, very eloquent personality who found a home on many networks, most notably in 1939 when she became the host of the long-running radio quiz What's My Name, which basically saw a panel trying to determine the identity of a celebrity or a famous historical person from up to ten clues. That show was the forerunner of another classic quiz, What's My Line, which was basically the same but saw a panel trying to work out the profession of a visiting guest or guests. Arlene Francis joined the panel on this show and it became one of the most popular quiz formats of all time. When it switched to television, it became the longest-running US television game show ever. Anyway, I have an episode for you today, so let's join the audience for a classic edition of What's My Line. See you afterwards. What's My Line? And now let's meet our award-winning panel of What's My Line. First, the popular columnist whose voice of Broadway appears in papers coast to coast, Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. And on my left, our favorite comedian, Joey Bishop. And to my left, a young lady who had just returned from a triumphant tour, a one-day visit with her son, Peter, in Deerfield, Arlene Francis. And now our darling publisher, whose random house, like Topsy, just grows and grows and grows, Mr. Bennett Cerf. And here's our fantastic panel moderator who can make the complicated explanation of a new story of great international significance seem simpler than a routine answer to a simple question <laughs> from a beleaguered member of this panel. Yeah. John Charles Francis Tui Daly. <laughs> and 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to What's My Line. Nice to have you with us again, Mr. Bishop. Thank you, Mr. Daly. We also have some very interesting occupations on tap to give the panel some trouble. We'll also have a famous mystery challenger before the panel a little bit later in the program. And now let's meet our first challenger. Will you enter and sign in, please? The... Flaherty Brothers, is that right? <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think the only thing for me to do is to ask you to sound off. Will we begin on this side, please? Garland. Garland. Thaddeus. Charles. John. John. Roscoe. John and Roscoe Flaherty. All Flaherty. Where are you all from? Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Well, it's nice to have you all with us. May I present the panel? The Flaherty's. Right. And now will you all join me over here and arrange yourselves around, about, and so forth? And uh, do you all know how we keep score? Yes, sir. In that event, let's let the audience in the theater and those looking in at home know exactly what your line is. The five Flaherty brothers are bartenders. All right, panel, we can tell you that... Uh, our mystery challenger, all five of him, <laughs> are self-employed, and uh, they deal in a service, and we'll begin the general questioning with uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Do you have anything to do with horses? No. no. One down and nine to go, Mr. Bishop. Am I safe in assuming that you do not play touch football against the Kennedy brothers? <laughs> you are safe. <laughs> Is it a, a service that requires all of you uh, being present? You mean in a group or... Yes. No, we would have to give you a no on that. Two down and eight to go, Miss Francis. Mrs. Flaherty's, uh, could I use your service? Yes, you may. Uh, if I lived in your part of the country, would I be liable to use your service? Possibly. Uh, in uh, doing what you do, would you ever come to the house? Good. Sometimes. That would be a sometime. I could go to an office or a store or a some place that you are and get your service at the, uh, the same way, could I? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, do you do anything that changes something materially? Yeah. Do you do something that changes something materially? I don't think... So that, that you would notice the change? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think here, with your permission, gentlemen, since the question was posed as change materially, we'll give a no answer, because I'm afraid that might be misleading otherwise. Three dollars to go, Mr. Sir. Mrs. Flaherty, when you're performing the service that I'm sure you perform so beautifully, you come into physical contact at any time with the person for whom you were performing said service. Yes, that's right. Just a minute now. <laughs> Bennett, we've had a meeting of the full committee. I saw you. And you guessed it, Bennett. You're going to give me a no. That's right, Bennett. That makes it four down and six to go, Miss Kilgallen. No physical contact necessary. If it did come, it would be accidental. Do people watch you do what you do? Do they pay to watch you? Yes. Indirectly. Indirectly. I think that's a fair answer there. There is a, a payment made, but we would not suggest that it necessarily was made only to watch what was being done. Are people better off because of what you do? <laughs> I think we'll let the answer stand that our guests think so. Do you own yourself employed? No. Uh, not, some are and some are not. Oh, Actually, the majority are self-employed, but... Uh, you mean like one employs the others? Is that the idea? No, it isn't that. I'd say of the five brothers, uh, three might be self-employed, two might be uh, in the same occupation, but uh, working for but somebody But they all else. do the same thing? They all do the same thing. Oh. Do you follow people around ever? <laughs> no. no. Five down and five to go, Mr. Bishop. Would the song, There'll Be Some Changes Made, be a good slogan for your outfit? <laughs> I wouldn't think so. No. no. Six down and four to go, Miss Francis. 
Uh, when you are purveying your service, would you be dealing with any animate objects of any kind, even though that isn't, uh, even though there is no product involved in what you do? Is it necessary for a product to be there for you to do whatever you do? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, to it with. 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 Yes. Uh, yes. So where am I? <laughs> are the are the products that you might have to do with uh, of different sizes? Mm. Yes. Yes. Sort of. Well, we could say that at one stage of their interest in the products with which they are dealing, that uh, there is an element of difference in the size of the relationship of the product one to the other. I did ask you that, I did say these are inanimate uh, products. Yes. Before, so, I mean, it's nothing live that they have to That's do right. anything mm -hmm. to. Um, would it have anything to do with um, auctioning or selling of any kind of products? Well, there's an element of selling involved, I would say, yes. I'm going to pass. I don't know where I am. Bennett? Sitting pretty, kid. Thank you. <laughs> do, do any of you or all of you have to belong to any kind of a union to do the kind of work that you're doing? No. no. It is not mandatory. At the same time, this does not rule out that union membership could uh, <coughs> not be, be used. Uh, uh, viable in this case. Does your work have anything whatever to do with the law? The law? Policing. No, I don't think so. No. Seven down and three to go, Miss Kilgallen. Do you work indoors more than outdoors? Indoors. Would you ever work in the home? Sometimes. And you would change something in the home? Well, no. I think we, we basically said that they didn't change anything materially. That, was, that question was answered negatively. So. But they made something look different, don't they? Or they make some difference? <laughs> well, they felt that there was one point of uh, argument here, but I think that on the issue of do they change something materially, we determined that the answer to that should be no as a point of information. Well, when you go into the homes, do you talk to the people? Oh, yes. Do you give them any advice? <laughs> well, it would, this would be perhaps a result of just idle conversation, yes. But they don't go there for idle conversation. No, I would think that's fair. And you don't touch any people? That's right. Do you touch anything? Yes. Do you ask for anything? No. That's no. eight down and two to go. I'm going to give you one more minute, Mr. Bishop. I think you guys got a lot of nerve coming here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Do, are your services primarily for the female sex? No. no. Nine down and one to go, Miss Francis. Do they remove anything? At one point, perhaps, in, the, in your service, you would be saying they removed something, yes. Uh, well, Bennett has an idea. Do you, uh, do you repair anything? No. Oh, no repair. I thought Bend it was garbage. Down no more to go. Yeah, Kenny, you never really got on the track of it, because it's, it's, they all do the same Mommy? thing, and it's Louisville, and we just passed Derby Louisville Week. Louisville Bluegrass. Bluegrass, that's a very good clue, Bluegrass. Does it tell you anything? They're farmers. Bartenders, that's absolutely oh. right. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, we had to to take a majority count on the issue of self-employed because uh, Roscoe and John and Fad have just opened their own establishment in the, uh, uh, what is it, the Essex, Essex House, Essex the House and, and in, in the Shamrock by the Essex House, and uh, their other two brothers are in the famous Brown Hotel, right? That's right. What's the drink most in demand? Martinis. That is after water, of course. What well, about, what about that? Mint julep? <laughs> Thank you very much, julep? gentlemen. It's nice to have had you all in What's My Line. Thank I hope you've enjoyed being with all right, let's meet our next challenger. Would you enter and sign in, please? Nellie Winnick. Right, ma'am?
Is it Miss or Mrs.? Mrs. Mrs. Winnick, and where are you from? Decatur, Illinois. Decatur, Illinois. It's nice to have you with us. May I present the panel? How do you do? Now, would you join me over here? Do you know how we keep score, Mrs. Winnick? Fine, then we'll let the audience in the theater and the audience at home know exactly what your line is. Mrs. Winnick is vice president of a kite manufacturing concern. All right, panel, Mrs. Winnick is salaried and deals in a product. And we'll begin the general questioning with Joey Bishop. She's the Flaherty Brothers' best customer. <laughs> um, is the uh, product that you deal in something that any one of the members of this panel would be interested in? Would be interested in, yes. yes. Is it a product for the home? You mean by this to adorn the home or to be used as a part of the day-to-day -day operation of a household? Or, or what else, John? Ask me another one. Maybe I'll answer you. <laughs> Maybe I have to give you a no in those terms of reference. That's one down and nine to go, Miss Francis. Is it a product that would ever come in contact with the person that was using it? Yes. Is it a product that would be uh, uh, on the outside of a person? When they were using it, yes. Mm -hmm. Would it be considered in any form apparel? Mm -hmm. Would it no. be apparel? No, that's two down and eight to go, Mr. Sir. Mrs. Winnick, is your product used by both sexes? Indiscriminately, evenly? Yes. Well, I would say it would hard to lay down, you know, in specific terms, but I think the fairest answer is to say it's used by both sexes. Uh, I would consider it's possible one might use it more than the other, but it's used by both. Is it a reasonably inexpensive product, Mrs. Winnick? Would it be used quite frequently by people? I would say those who had it and had an interest in its use would use it frequently, yes. Is it ever put down in a place that's visible in the home? There are circumstances under which it would be put down uh, in a place where it would be visible in the home, yes. If it was put down in such a place, would it most likely be put down in the dining room or kitchen? Yes, that's nice. <laughs> well, I would say that if it were put down, it is likely to be put down in one of those two rooms, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Might the kitchen be more likely than the dining room? Just having in mind the usual experience <laughs> or the normal record of experience, I think perhaps the kitchen would be a likely room, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Would Mrs. Winnick, this product then, be of any use in the preparation of meals? No, I don't think so. Three down and seven to go, Miss Kilgallen. Uh, Mrs. Winning, I'm going to ask one of those questions that I always ask wrong. May I rule out false teeth? <laughs> ask it right this time. Uh, is it something that shows when the person is wearing it? Uh, the assumption of wearing there gets you the no answer. Oh, it's adornment, but it isn't worn. Is that it? No, we haven't said that either. That's four down and six to go. Apparel? What did you have? No, I got a no one. Uh, are we ruling out the fact that costume jewelry or anything in that category would be adornment? We're not ruling it out. I mean, if you want to ask the specific question as to whether this product is an adornment to the person, if used... Well, let me ask you this, John. If I start to ask it and you reach for the card, can I withdraw the question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is it in the field of costume... Um, let me ask you this. <laughs> We have determined that uh, the uh, female uh, would be more likely to wear it than the male. No. no, and you, you're going back. That it has been determined that it is not worn. It is you not must worn. remember this, yeah. And it, on the issue of, of its use, we agree that it is used by both sexes, but we don't feel that we're qualified to state whether one definitely uses it more than another. Or is it perhaps like a product that is edible? Is it edible? No, that's five down and five to go, Miss Francis. Is there something corrective or healing in this product? No, six down and four to go, Mr. Sir. Would there anything be anything in this product that might dispose of things like a garbage can or a wastebasket? No, seven down and three to go, Miss Kilgallen. Uh, could and this ever be used as a weapon? No, not for a no. Not Eight down and two to go. To not meant to be, Mr. Bishop. Tune in next week, folks, and see the new panel. 
Is it perhaps something that would be used uh, in terms of cleanliness? No. Nine down and one to go, Miss Francis. Do you... Uh... Would you be liable to put it up somewhere? It is described as being better. put up, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, put up. It has nothing to do with... Wallpaper. <laughs> no, it's a material of some kind. Well, all right, let's find out what the material is. Is the material um, a paper? Yeah. Wallpaper. Oh, God. Has Mr. Bennett Surf got it? Is it wallpaper and is this lady a paper hanger? No, no. Thank you a lot, Bennett Surf, for the second time. <laughs> you and your random house. Go read your books. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. But actually, you were, you were on the track putting up some paper. If you can't put up wallpaper, you'd think of kites now, wouldn't you? Kites? Kites. Kites? She's a kite kites. maker, Mrs. No. Uh... no, actually sells kites. Oh, sells for the kites. Kitchen? Yes, darling. Sells kites for the kite kitchen? in the kitchen. No, well, a youngster who is playing. I tried to tell you that you know this is something that could come into the house, and you could find it. A youngster coming in from play with a kite would put it down somewhere That's in the kitchen. Right, it's not no. barred from You're the house. You're the sloppiest house, John. <laughs> <laughs> no kitchen should be without a kite. No kitchen. <laughs> Not we have any choice in it. Actually, uh, Mrs. Winnick is, is a vice president of the uh, high, high Flyer Manufacturing Company. One interesting aspect of this, Mrs. Winnick told me, you are remaking or, an uh, order. We, do, uh, we have a repeat. Have a repeat order from the United States Navy. Uh, the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean has reordered on the basis of their original experience with a kite they had made that had a message on, in eight languages written on it. What was it? Uh, the United States Sixth Fleet, Power for Peace. And in the Mediterranean, the oh. six fleets in the Mediterranean, and they give these kites the to youngsters all over the Mediterranean. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank it's you very much me. for puzzling the panel completely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Now we come to the special feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery challenger, for which the panel is always blindfolded. Are the blindfolds in place, panel? Yes, Good. Well, well you enter in. mystery challenger and sign in, please. Tonight's mystery challengers are the singing Crosby brothers, Phil, Dennis, and Lindsay. The Crosby brothers. All right, panel, as you know, the case of our mystery challenger, different form of questioning. One question at a time, in turn, moving clockwise. We'll begin with uh, Arlene Francis. Is our guest in the entertainment business? Uh, yeah, you could say that, sure. Sir? Do you ever sing professionally? Possible, yeah. <laughs> Miss Gilgallan? Do you also play a musical instrument? I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> one down and nine to go, Mr. Bishop. Are there more than one of you? Well, uh, yes, you'd have to say that. Miss Francis? It's the McGuire sisters. Right. Uh, <laughs> are you best known for your uh, club appearances? Yes. Mr. Sir? Are you brothers? Well, they're Michael. <laughs> uh, yeah. Miss Kilgallen? Uh, are you recording artists as well? Well, you might say that, yes. Mr. Bishop? Would Gary mean more to you than a city in Indiana? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Joey. <laughs> yes, I think you would. You got it, Joey. Say it. Oh, yeah. The Crosby Brothers. <laughs> it is indeed Phil, Dennis, and Lindsay Crosby who uh, struck out on their own. And I think um, one of the things that the three of you must be proudest of, they're presently at the Latin Quarter, as you all know, here in New York. And they had a very uh, successful opening night. And I think the thing they're perhaps proudest of is that one or two of the major critics went out of their way to say that uh, while they had the capacity to bring back memories of their very talented father, they could stand on their own as performers in the 
they had done a, a very fine job of working hard to prepare their performance. So congratulations to all three of you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, we were awful. We felt very fortunate with the critics here in the in the big city and uh, very lucky indeed. Well, I should think you should feel very <laughs> fortunate and lucky and happy about it because I never saw such universal praise from you. We're also very glad to see uh, you and Dorothy in for that opening night. Oh, yes, we have, we have to go for that. Oh, Joey, where Joey, Joey was, was working. Where were you, well, Joey? I tell you, uh, we felt a little giddy, uh, guilty having given away a hundred dollars. You know, we thought we'd better grab him quick, <laughs> make it up. You know, the deficit. Well, just so that we don't let that stand of the record, there we'll we flip all those over, and the boys can tell us what to do with it later on. That's the thing. Well, I hope your good dad is watching, and uh, congratulations again. And may I hope that you all have the wonderful, long, and successful career he has. Thank you very much. And thanks a lot for coming in. I've got to congratulate you on that panel. You certainly made a quick recovery after a little bit of a rough start there. Joey, it's been great fun having you with us again. Thank you, John. And uh, good night. Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. Good night, John. Good night, and thank you for saving us from total disgrace, Joey. Oh, thank you, Dorothy, and good night, Arlene. Good night, dear. Good night. Tuesday. John, for the first time, I can tell you something I've always wanted to. Go fly Mrs. Winnick's kite. <laughs> good night, John. <laughs> I liked it myself. And thank you very much for being with us on What's My Life. And that was the excellent What's My Line, starring the wonderful Miss Arlene Francis. I do hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, that is it from me for this episode. Don't forget to go on over to the film club to watch Cocaine Fiends and send me your review, either via email or as an MP3. And remember that you can get extra episodes by signing up to be a patron. Just listen on to the end if that interests you. As I said earlier, the next one is all about the missing 75 films on the BFI's most wanted list. Only remains for me to say thank you once more for joining me. I shall speak to you again very soon. Take care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.